All right, well, we are in a new year, and we are back in the books of Samuel. So it's been a couple of months since we were in Samuel. Now we are kicking up 2 Samuel. And one of the themes that repeatedly presents itself in the Bible is what one scholar calls the brother problem. He calls it the brother problem. And it starts with the first set of brothers, when Cain murders Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? He asks, with his brother's blood crying out to God from the ground. Ishmael laughs at Isaac, and Sarah demands that Ishmael be banished from his home and from his father Abraham. Jacob and Esau wrestle, even in Rebekah's womb. Jacob gets Esau's birthright and the blessing of the firstborn by crafty means, which leads to Esau breathing murderous threats against Jacob, and Jacob asks to leave town. Joseph's brothers hate him to where they not only sell him into slavery, but they fake his death and tell their father that he's basically been killed by a wild animal so that Jacob will never find out. This is all just in the book of Genesis. But it opens out and sets forth one of the significant problems that we face in life, and that's broken relationships. These fractures and brotherly relationships make us wonder, when I'm estranged from my brother and sister, will Cain always win? Will the the way of death always win? God created a good world, one in which it's not good for man to be alone. But sin crouches at the door to turn people against one another. So where is there hope for reconciliation and for unity? Well, beginning with Abraham, in whom all the families of the earth were to be blessed, we get glimpses that within the people of God, when people know God and walk in his ways, reconciliation and unity might be possible. Genesis 25.9 says that after Abraham died, Isaac and Ishmael, both of his sons, gathered together to bury him at the cave at Machpelah. There's a peaceful reunion between these brothers to bury their father. After many years apart, Jacob and Esau reconcile, weeping on each other's necks. And Jacob says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. And despite Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, Joseph tells them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So in Abraham, God initiates his project to rescue the world from its corruption. And a big part of that is putting broken relationships back together and making them stronger. Reconciliation and unity. That's the central theme that I want to emphasize tonight in 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. Which, did anybody read it beforehand? Just a quick show of hands. Okay, some of you did. Which, if you read it beforehand, doesn't seem to have very much in it that's actually edifying to anybody. I've never seen an episode of the HBO series Game of Thrones, but... Uh, This text sounds a lot like probably what Game of Thrones is like, from what I hear about it. 24 young men are killed in individual combat. No fewer than three people get stabbed in the belly. Two men are killed, dismembered, and hanged. One person is beheaded. And there's just way too many concubines in the story for anybody to be comfortable with. I feel like I should have given the sermon a parental advisory before I started it. So what's redeeming about this? Where is there even a germ of the gospel in this dark and bloody text. Well, the gospel is good news. And the good news here is that David, God's anointed, is becoming king. David is becoming king. Again, think reconciliation and unity. 
In David, there is hope for a unified Israel. In David, there's hope that God's anointed will bring the 12 tribes of Israel together and make it strong. Why? So that Israel can be the light to the nations that it was ordained by God to be. That's the hope. Wherever reconciliation and unity are possible, and sadly, it's not always possible, God is seeking to do it. God is seeking to do it, and he's doing it through his people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, Jesus says. So keep that in mind as we go through tonight's text. We begin at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there at Hebron they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So David is God's anointed. Samuel anointed him many years before, and here David's anointed again. And he's anointed and made king over the house of Judah. But Judah is just one of the 12 tribes. What about all the rest of Israel? Well, we go on. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. Now, two generations after David, the kingdom will be split north and south in the reign of Rehoboam. But even now, it's pretty clear that Israel is not a unified nation. David's king over the tribe of Judah, but Ishbosheth is king over all Israel, which is basically all of the other tribes. And this might be a little bit puzzling to us, I think. After all, when Samuel anoints David, we're led to believe that whenever Saul is no longer king, then David will be king over all Israel. And now Saul's dead, and David's the rightful king. All should be well, shouldn't it? If only it were so simple. It's not really the way it works. Think about political elections. Think about whenever your presidential candidate wins the presidency, whoever your candidate is. Think about when they win. You're happy that they won. But does that mean that the nation is instantly unified under that new president? Absolutely not. That's why you see hashtags like, not my president, even though there is only one president over the whole country. In 1984, Ronald Reagan, running for re-election, carried 525 electoral votes. He won 49 states and 58.8% of the popular vote. It was a landslide win over Walter Mondale. Mondale got the District of Columbia and Minnesota, and he only got Minnesota by about less than 4,000 votes. So you would think that with all but one state voting for Reagan, that he, we would have a unified country after that, right? It's not the way it works. Because despite Reagan's big numbers, 37 million people voted for Mondale. They voted against Reagan. And while Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush, four years later, won the presidency, he didn't win by as much. And in 1992, Bill Clinton unseated him from the presidency only eight years after this landslide victory. Bringing people together and making them strong is just plain hard work no matter what the size, let alone in a nation like ours, or David's. So when David becomes king over Judah, his work of reconciling and unifying is really just getting started. And the question is, how is David going to go about it? 
How is he going to do it? In particular, how is he going to treat the remaining family members in the house of Saul and those who are loyal to Saul? How is he going to treat them? It's no secret that if you become king, the How to Be King playbook says that the best way to stay king is to wipe out the family of your predecessor. That's the best way to stay king. In fact, this happens several times in Israel's later history. So David's best bet for remaining king is to kill Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, and to kill Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and to kill Abner, and to kill anybody else who's remotely loyal to Saul. That's David's best bet if he wants to stay king. And you think of the men of Jabesh Gilead. We see them at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 2. They're loyal to Saul. They're the men who risked their lives to steal Saul and Jonathan's bodies after they were killed by the Philistines. Now, why would they do that? Why would the men of Jabesh Gilead do that? Well, you might remember back in 1 Samuel, in chapter 11, in Saul's early days as king, there was a guy named Nahash the Ammonite. And Nahash the Ammonite besieged Jabesh Gilead, which was Israelite territory. And the elders of Jabesh Gilead said, well, let's make a treaty with you. And Nahash said, well, I'll tell you what I can do. I'll make a treaty with you, but to make a treaty, I have to gouge out everybody's right eye. And the elders of Jabesh Gilead said, please hold. And they called Saul, they cried out to Saul and said, please rescue us. And Saul, with the Lord's help, did come and rescue the people of Jabesh Gilead and routed the Ammonites. So when Saul and Jonathan died, were killed by the Philistines, and Saul was beheaded and his body was pinned to the walls of the Philistines, the men of Jabesh Gilead remembered what Saul had done. 1 Samuel 31, 12 to 13 says, All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. They risked their lives to do that out of loyalty to Saul. So what is David going to do about them? They could be dangerous. They might want to ally with Ishbosheth, and they might want to depose David. But one thing that we know from David's time before he became king is that he refused to grasp after what had not been given to him. He wasn't going to take things by force. And a unified kingdom had not yet been given to David. He's already king, but it's not yet a unified Israel. He's an already not yet king. And he's not going to achieve unity by wiping out all of his competitors. So he sends messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. So David doesn't act out of paranoia. He doesn't act out of fear of what these men might do later. Instead, he promises to do good to these men who are loyal to Saul. This is a good thing that David does. This shows promise for reconciliation and for unity. This is what David sees in Abner, somebody who is loyal to his Lord. Now you might say, yeah, but Abner, he's the one who sets up Ishbosheth as king of all Israel. What's good about that? Why, why would Abner do that? And why would David see that as a good thing? Well, first, the question of why would Abner do that 
In 1 Chronicles chapter 8, it turns out that Abner is not only the commander of Saul's army, but he's also Saul's uncle. He's a blood relative. Abner was probably a generation older than Saul when he became commander and when Saul became king, and he was steadfastly loyal to Saul throughout Saul's long, tortured kingship. And so Abner is an old man now at this point. And when Abner makes Ishbosheth king of all Israel, he's elevating the son of his nephew to the throne. He's showing loyalty to his relative and to his nephew. Abner's not opposed to David, but he's not going to abandon his nephew's son, who needs his help. At least, not yet. Abner's a central figure in these chapters, so we want to take a little closer look at him. And again, keep in mind the big picture of reconciliation and unity, bringing together what's separate and making it stronger. After Abner makes Ishbosheth king, he and Joab, who's the commander of David's army, decide to have a little contest. Twelve on twelve of their young men competing against one another. And the word compete in scripture, the Hebrew word for it, always means play or sport or mock. It never means battle to the death. And so what Abner proposes is for 12 of Ishbosheth's young men to fight against 12 of David's young men for bragging rights, essentially. But that's not what happens. 2 Samuel 2.16 says, And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. What was meant to be a mock contest between these two sides becomes a bloodbath. And all 24 young men are killed. And this sparks more bloodshed because Asahel, the brother of Joab, chases after Abner, determined to have a confrontation with him. Now remember that Abner is an old man and he doesn't want any part of this. Pay attention in the text to how Abner tries to not fight with Asahel. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Abner didn't want to do it, but Asahel left him really no choice. Well, Asahel was a brother of Joab, the commander of David's army, and so Joab pursues Abner intent on revenge. And so we have to ask, are we going to have more bloodshed? Is bloodshed just going to generate more bloodshed? Will an Israelite brother kill an Israelite brother? Will Cain win the day once again? Well, Abner takes his stand and he calls out to Joab, 2 Samuel 2.26, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? In other words, we are brothers. How long are we going to shed each other's blood? Shall the sword devour forever? Well, for once, reason wins the day. And Job calls off the attack. 
He's not going to take his vengeance upon Abner, and there will be no more bloodshed. At least, not yet. But whatever the momentary truce, we learn that all is not well in Israel. 2 Samuel 3.1 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And part of David making his house stronger comes through adding wives, concubines, and sons. So 2 Samuel 3, 2 through 5, And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. This is not a good thing. In fact, this goes against God's law for the king. Deuteronomy 17, 17. And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. Now we know that Solomon will break this law in spades later on. But counting David's first wife, Michal, David has seven wives and concubines. And it perhaps points ahead to what's going to happen a little bit later with Bathsheba. Also, three of the sons listed here, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, will cause serious problems within David's house. But the house of David's becoming stronger, and the house of Saul is becoming weaker. Ishbosheth really doesn't have very much going for him. In fact, his name means man of shame. There's a bad name that was given to him. Man of shame. And he doesn't have much going for him other than that Abner, who's the commander of the military, supports him. But even that is starting to go south. In 2 Samuel 3, 6-11, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of taking liberties with one of Saul's former concubines. And there isn't any evidence that Abner actually did anything like that. Rather, it seems that Ishbosheth is paranoid and afraid of others with power. Does that ring a bell of anybody else? Like Saul, who is paranoid and afraid of others who are powerful? And this becomes the time when Abner finally cuts ties with the house of Saul. And he transfers his loyalty from the house of Saul and Ishbosheth to the house of David. He's not going to have Ishbosheth killed. But he is going to use his influence to put all Israel now under the reign of David. So in verse 20 of chapter 3, When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, I'm sorry, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. This is a good thing. Because of Ishbosheth's stupidity, there's now a chance for David and Abner to achieve the reconciliation of all the tribes of Israel and unify them under David. No more bloodshed, no more divided house. Well, Abner no sooner leaves than Joab returns from a raid. And he hears that David met with Abner, and sent him away in peace, and Joab becomes angry. Remember that Abner had killed Joab's brother. Now, Joab has a choice here. 
He can nurse his own grudge against Abner, or he can see the opportunity that's unfolding for a unified Israel. He could see what would be good for David as master. Sin is crouching at the door for Joab, so what's he going to do? Verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Surah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. That's two belly stabbings, if you're keeping score. Actually, three if you count Saul at the end of 1 Samuel. So Joab gets his revenge on Abner, even though Abner had not wanted to kill Asahel. As the commander of David's army, Joab should have kept in mind what would be best for David, but he didn't do it. Instead, he nursed his own desire for payback. And now, David has a really big problem. Why? Well, Abner had only just come with his offer for unity. As far as everybody else was concerned, Abner was still supporting Ishbosheth. He was not on David's side. So what's the most likely explanation for Abner's death? David had Abner whacked, and he intended to take the house of Saul by force. That's the most likely explanation. This is not a good thing. And it might help explain some of what follows. Verse 31 and 32. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Now we might think, why does David go to such great lengths to mourn for Abner? Well, for one thing, Abner was murdered, and David had not commanded that. It was wrong for Joab to do it. And for another thing, David's desperate to show that he was not responsible for Abner's murder. He had not ordered it. Quite the opposite. For a long time, David had worked for reconciliation with the house of Saul. He didn't kill Saul when he had the chance, twice. He'd made a covenant with Jonathan, Saul's son. He killed the Amalekite who thought he was bringing good news when he said that he had killed Saul on the battlefield. And he genuinely mourns Abner's death. David wants everybody to know that he wants a unified Israel and peace with the house of Saul. And it seems that he succeeds. Verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. But some people just don't get it. The last thing that happens in our text tonight is that two guys looking to score points with David kill Ishbosheth. They murder him on his bed. Yes, they stab him in the belly. And they bring his head to David. Look what we did, O king. We offed your rival, and now the kingdom is yours to be had. So how's David going to respond to this? David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Beerthite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. 
How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Now, was Ishbosheth righteous? Not really. But did he deserve to be murdered? No. And David shows that his heart had never gone in the way of Cain by having Saul's sons and loyalists murdered. And next week, we'll see his heart for peace and how he acts toward Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So, what are we to take from all this? Well, remember that the gospel is that in Jesus, God is taking his good world that was corrupted by sin and is putting everything right again. And that includes our relationships. You know, Abner and Joab should have learned something from the play fighting that turned tragic. When brothers fight brothers, everybody loses. Nobody wins in a civil war. When brothers fight brothers, everybody loses. And if we have broken relationships in our lives, we need to ask, shall the sword devour forever? Paul writes in Romans 12, 17, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, sometimes others will not let us be reconciled to them. But Paul says, so far as it depends on you. And perhaps the Spirit is tapping you on the shoulder to say that you haven't quite done all that you can in that relationship. There's always a lot more to so far as it depends upon you than we like to admit. Remember David. He's finally king. He could achieve unity by eliminating all of his opponents. But what kind of unity would that be if he did that? It'd be a unity based on fear and abuse of power. A unity that would always be fragile, always at the risk of just blowing up. And I think we have to ask, what kind of unity is it if I always have to have my own way? What kind of unity is it if I have to have my way in order for us to be unified? If I have to have all my demands met if we're going to be at peace? The unity that Jesus achieved for us came at the expense of his body broken and his blood shed. That's final, and it's unbreakable. It's not fragile. It's not always at risk of blowing up. But it has to be received by us in the same spirit in which he gave it. And when we do that, we are the answer to the rifts and the divisions in our world. When we walk in unity, we display the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if I could try to summarize everything I said tonight in one New Testament passage, it'd be the one that Adam read earlier, 1 John 3, 11 to 14. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.